my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When I joined, I didn't know anything about television. I didn't even like it. My interview was with Fred who said, so what kind of music do you like? And I think I said Bruce Springsteen, I'm not sure. He said, well, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. And then about 45 minutes later, I left, not having said anything else. And the next thing I know, they were like, look, this is just a few of us. We're trying to get this thing going, if you'd like to join. And it was kind of like, how fast can I get out the door of Condé Nast and jump on this thing, whatever it is. These people are crazy. Bob Pittman and welcome to Math and Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This is a place where we're looking at both sides of the marketing equation, math and magic. And along the way, we're going to hear some good stories. And today we're going to hear some really good stories from Judy McGrath. Judy is an old old pal of mine. We started at MTV in those early days when we were the 20-something crowd. She has done an awful lot. She started in MTV and worked her way all the way up to CEO of MTV Networks, which included Nickelodeon and a bunch of other networks. She is a role model for creatives, women, and people from little small towns in Pennsylvania. Also as a board member at Amazon, which has to be a treat unto itself. Judy is well known as a magician and probably not as well known and not appreciated as much as being a pretty good mathematician, too. You made some really hard business decisions as well. So I want to jump into all that. But first, I want to do you in 60 seconds. Are you ready? Ready. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Beatles or stones? Both. Oh, no. Okay. Taylor or Kanye? Kanye. East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. MTV or VH1? VH1, early 90s. Ah, that's pretty good. Okay. Beavis or Butthead? Daria. Oh, that's why you're creative. You're the offbeat. Okay. Favorite city? New York. Secret talent? Piano play. Hmm, I didn't know that. What'd you eat for breakfast? Coffee, 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 and more coffee. <laughs> what would you eat for your last meal? Don't say coffee. I would 
have a peanut butter sandwich with my daughter and my husband. Childhood hero. Believe it or not, Leonard Bernstein, I wanted to conduct an orchestra. A favorite TV show. The Americans. Historical idol. One of the Bronte sisters. Any of them. I read Jane Eyre 25 times. Worst fad or fashion trend you've participated in or that you saw on MTV? <laughs> Super big power-shouldered jackets. You looked great in it, by the way. What did you want to be when you were growing up? A reporter. What's one food you'd never eat? Foie gras. Ooh. What are you most proud of? Early days of MTV. What are you listening to or watching right now? Listening. Oh, listening. I love listening. Oh, you know, Slow Burn. A lot of the news ones. The Daily, Vox, Bob Pittman's podcast. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I still primarily listen to music. And that's that's my favorite thing. That's cool. Let's jump into you. Scranton, Pennsylvania? Scranton, Pennsylvania. Small town. Went to college in, still in Pennsylvania? Allentown, Pennsylvania. So you couldn't get out of the state. What influence did that have on you? You and I have talked about parents before in the past, and you had some fabulous parents. Tell me about how they influenced you. My dad loved music. And so growing up in a town like Scranton, let's just say the musical tastes were probably what you might expect from that old-time ethnicity. But my dad loved jazz, and he played Duke Ellington and Earl Hines and Sarah Vaughan and all this great stuff all the time. And he would hang over the, you know, the little crappy turntable and drop the needle and have a cigarette. And he'd grab me by my school uniform and say, listen to this, take the A train. And I would think this is incomprehensible. This makes no sense to me. I have no idea what this is, but he's madly in love with it. And so when I finally started bringing music home, my music, Stones, you know, The Doors, The Beatles, he wanted to listen with me, which I did not want at all. But when I think about some of the things he said, he thought, dare I say, the Beatles were pop crap and that the Stones were blues, you know, and that Charlie Watts was a big band drummer. And it was a way to have a relationship with him. I remember thinking later, he had a passion that was separate from family and work. And I really wanted that for myself. What really motivated me, though, was I had a sense from reading like Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone and listening to music that there was a tribe of people somewhere that were my tribe, and I couldn't find them where I was. And if I could find them, and if I could have a part of anything they were doing, I would be all in. And to me, that was like the dream was in New York City, which my parents, friends, and neighbors felt like I was moving to Moscow or Brussels or someplace. It seemed like New York City. It's impossible. You can't do that. No one does that. So it sounds like you didn't have family connections. So how on earth did you get to Condé Nast? My mother was like definitely a feminist before her time. And it was like, go, go, go. You can do it. You can do it. When I came to New York, I thought, I cannot walk into Condé Nast. I look like I just fell off the coal truck. I mean, this is, I don't have the nerve. And she's like, go in there, do it. You know, something will happen. If it doesn't, try again. She was one of these people who always said perseverance is an underrated virtue. And I think she was right about that. Interestingly, I did not have a Devil Wears Prada experience in Condé Nast at all. I think I did a little bit of research, and I was a big magazine fan. Before I get to Rolling Stone, my ultimate goal, I wonder if I could possibly get in the door of one of these magazines. Is there any way? So I made this dummy magazine. I went in and I went into personnel, as they called it in those days. And this very nice older woman really did not want to deal with me. And she said, well, there's a copy test for a magazine called Mademoiselle that you can take. And I said, would you mind telling me what the compensation is since I just literally gotten off the bus? And she said, dear, if you need to ask that question, you can't afford to work here. I went home. I took the copy test. I passed. And I walked through the doors and thought, Wow, you could literally tell who worked at which magazine by what they were wearing, eating, saying, drinking, and where they were clubbing, and you could pick all that up just from the lobby. So Mademoiselle, which is no more, was kind of the smart girl magazine at the time. You know, Fran Lebowitz was a columnist, and some of the early sort of the pre-Martha Stewart people, Mary Emmerling, and there were just tons of people there. I made some of the best friends in my life there who eventually led me to you, and MTV. And I got in there and I just would stay up till four in the morning writing and rewriting these ridiculous things like 
women who love men who hate women and why and models party tips and whatever it was. I just gave it my all. I was so thrilled to be there. And I think I sucked up everything. And what I also observed was brand. I mean, those magazines have very clearly defined brands and they do not veer off that path. Alexander Lieberman would come in and look at a display and say, that's not Vogue, that's not Glamour, that's not Mademoiselle, and he would be right. And it was that thing of learning about what is it that makes this thing important to somebody? What is it that defines this versus everything else? You have a story about one of the editors that you said you wrote something and basically she said, "Yes, that won't do. That's one of my favorite stories that you've ever told. Well, I had a wonderful editor, Karen Andereg at Mademoiselle. I killed myself writing something and she called me in and she said, this is really not good. And I was devastated. I mean, I thought, oh my God, I've spent my whole life trying to get a foot in this door. And then she said, you know, I think you can do this, but this is really it. So I'm going to show you how to construct something good. And I'm going to give you one chance to go back and do that. And then we'll take a look. And if it's not good, we're going to have a very different conversation. So here's what a headline is. Here's what a grabby is. Here's what, you know, the middle of the story is supposed to be. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Blah, 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 blah. So I went back. I thought about her very clear, very architectural, if you will, feedback. And also the fact that she said, I think you can do this, but I'm not sure. And um, when I turned it in, the rewrite, I didn't hear from her. And then she came out and said, it's, it's really good. It's very good. You got it. Wow. You know, Harvard Business Review just had a story, which we sent around in the office, about innovation and company culture and how you innovate. I thought of the story, actually, which is why I brought it up. And one of the things it pointed out, uh, it said that actually candor works, not niceness. That, she was very direct. And, you know, it the, was candor. The best favor someone can do for you mm-hmm. is just tell you the truth. It felt like a real jolt. In contrast, I worked at Glamour for a while, which was a great magazine. I worked for an editor who would you turn something in. She would rewrite it all over it and send it out to you via assistant. Demoralizing learn nothing, start to think like, why don't you just write it yourself? You know, like a bratty 20-something would. But, you know, the candor, the directness, I appreciate it. You've always been a great coach, and you've been thought of as a great coach, especially for creative people. Did it come from this? Did you take that lesson with you? Oh, I think I definitely took that lesson with me. I don't think I'm quite as candid as Karen was, but... A creative person does need guardrails and does like some sort of directional feedback. They don't just want a rubber stamp, even if they think they do. I thought about a few things. I mean, the the beauty and the wonder of MTV was that it was really filled with people that I thought could not find gainful employment anywhere else. We couldn't. No. It would be somebody who had never really shot anything and just wanted to get their hands on a camera and try it. And we were willing to do that. But we were willing to do it against a set of promises we were making to the fans, to the audience, to the viewers, to the consumers, to the users. So I would say, absolutely, but remember, don't fall in love with your own idea. This is about someone else, not you. This is about the person on the other side. Who are they? Who are you trying to communicate with? What's different about them today than yesterday? They're like you, but you can't make this just for you. And there are really no other rules aside from, you know, no full frontal nudity. Go out there and do it. And it was so much fun to have the freedom to meet people who were far more creative than I was. I began to see I was sort of a better editor coach than I was a player. So many great people got opportunity through that company. Quirky people like Marcy Braffman, who was there when I got there. People like John Sykes who could step out there and ask anybody to do anything, you know, and just make you want to join the party. And, you know, Ted Demi and Mark Pellings and all these great people Fred coming Seibert. in. Fred Seibert. He was, he was the person who invented the graphic look of MTV. He came from radio. Yeah. He was the promotion director at a radio station, yeah. and he was in charge of the visual. Well, exactly. And I think we were so snotty that I th- I remember thinking like, I don't want to hire anybody who worked at an advertising agency 
or a television network or a magazine. I mean, when I joined, I didn't know anything about television. I didn't even like it. My interview was with Fred, who said, so what kind of music do you like? And I think I said Bruce Springsteen. I'm not sure. He said, well, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. And then about 45 minutes later, I left, not having said anything else. And the next thing I know, they were like, well, you know, look, this is just a few of us. We're trying to get this thing going if you'd like to join. And it was kind of like, how fast can I get out the door of Condé Nast and jump on this thing, whatever it is. So how did you get over to us at MTV? I had some friends who came to work for you. They said, well, they're starting this thing. It's going to be music on television. It's, I don't even know what it is. It's three-minute clips. And when I think about it now, I I had another Condé Nast moment that was also instructive. So many people at Condé Nast were opposed to it. It was like I was telling them I was joining the circus or something. If I said of I was, yeah, if I were. said, well, I'm going to be Diane Sawyer's PA or something like that, I think they would have felt they were like cable television, music, video clips. If you stayed here for 25 years, you could be managing editor. I was thinking, I'm not even thinking about that. So I thought, well, if this many people think it's a bad idea, I'm definitely going to do it. I mean, it has to be a good idea. You know, I've just found the camaraderie and the purpose and the sheer invention of something that didn't exist so irresistible. And again, on the math side of it, I will say, and I mean this with all sincerity, you had a a map in the creative group. You had a plan and the plan were promises. And I loved that. I am making a promise to you. If you sit here, I'm going to deliver something that you've been waiting for. It is the first music television network. It is exactly for you. And I thought, wow, I want my MTV. It's not distributed in Manhattan. I have no idea what it is, but those are powerful words. My. In it in an era before social media and social engagement, something for me that felt like mine and want. What a powerful word, right? I want my MTV. I took that very seriously. I took those promises to heart 24 hours a day. Terrific. In stereo, not really, but, you know, hey, it's marketing. Hey, it sounded good, didn't it? <laughs> it sounded good. But for those 10 people who did have stereo, I it know. was brilliant. I remember you saying to me, we want people to think it sounds better than regular television, and they did. It just felt to me like if I could marry all the things I'm interested in with these set of principles and join this crazy band of people who have no right and a lot of audacity and a firm belief that this can work, I mean, what a gift. I never looked back. Not one second. You know, we used to say back then that all of us were doing jobs we had never done before. Yes. So we didn't really know what we weren't supposed to do. I saw some interview a year or so ago with Mark Zuckerberg, and the essence of it was he didn't value experience at all. He valued vision, smarts, etc. And and I thought about it, I actually said, you know, in those days, we were the 20-something crowd. You and I are the same age. We're not 20-something anymore, unfortunately. But we didn't value experience. As a matter of fact, people had experience. We thought that was some excuse for them trying to be relevant. And it was a negative. Well, now we're at this age where we are full of experience and maybe not the sheer creativity we once had. Do you think experience has a role that we didn't appreciate when we were in our 20s? It's hard to answer that question without stepping outside yourself. You know, as I said, like you, I never wanted to be away from young adult culture. And even if I felt like a vampire at times, I thought, you know, I need to be near this. And as I've spent time around subsequent generations from ours, I thought, my God, they are so much more equipped than we were to change the world. I mean, there's so many more tools. There's so much data that we never had. There's so many wonderful things about who they are. And at the same time, there's some things about our unconventional experience. I mean, let's face it, we're experienced, but we're not exactly, you know. We didn't work at IBM. We didn't work at IBM. I mean, you know, I can still, I have nieces and nephews who look at me and they're like, you know who Post Malone is? They assume I do, and I do. Right. But do my friends? No. You know, we had such a great period of being able to be young and inexperienced and devoted and into it before 
I feel like I'm looking at some of these smaller companies. They start building corporate overstructures, and I was just talking to a group. I said, so what's your, like, mission? What's your vision? And they said, mobile first. And I thought, okay, I mean, yes, but what isn't, really? That doesn't make me want to get up in the morning, and everything is that to me. It's like, yes, but what is it about you? What do you know about that person who's going to share what you do today or listen or care or what is it about you? I started to think that my style was out of style or your style, you know, that creatively led anything was out of style, that it was really only about left brain. It was only about math for a minute. But the truth is now you can have an incredible marriage of both even more than we were able to. And let's face it, one of the things that I admired and valued in MTV was research. But it wasn't focus groups. It was what's going on in your life that influences you and makes you who you are and determines what you like. It was like qualitative research, right? It was as much data as we could get about who loves MTV, who might like it, who could love it some more. So that was important. That was very important. But it's not the only thing, and it can't be the dominant thing. You know, we did do a concept test of MTV, if you remember. The board of directors did not want to do this idea, so I had this idea that we would get a pollster to do a concept test. And it came back really great, like 70% of you said, I like that. I'd listen to that or watch that channel. And we used that in the board presentation. And finally, the board didn't say yes. Steve Ross, who ran Warners, and Jim Robinson, who ran American Express, had to get in a room and say yes. But... I do think that little bit of research made them feel better than a bunch of 20-year-olds saying, hey, we got a great idea here. Let us at it. Someone was talking to me about the incredible data at Netflix and the fact that they use data for casting and everything else. And I said, yes, I think that is fantastic. I wish I had had it. It's incredible. But I still believe there's somebody at Netflix who read a script from the Duffer Brothers for Stranger Things They stuck their finger up and read the zeitgeist and said there's some Spielbergian 90s kind of retro thing going on. They hit pay dirt with Millie Bobby Brown. They brought Winona Ryder back. They mixed up this stew of things. And the data alone will not lead you to that. So you need some people in the mix who can also just read tea leaves and take a chance. We're all looking for things that connect and work and hit, and most of them don't. But that part of it is, I think, essential in the mix, too. Well, I think that's sort of the heart of, you know me, I've used math and magic since I was in my 20s, that the research tells us what the people are like, where they're living, what their attitudes are, but it doesn't tell us what to do to excite them. Mm -hmm. Research is not policymaking, and I think we shared that that way back when. It's, okay, now i got a picture for these people. I got a great idea. Let's do the Lost Weekend with Van Halen. Uh, let's paint that house pink and get John Mellencamp to, to you know, know. Go give it away. Um, and I remember listening to one of the writers sitting there one day saying, I hate my miserable life. And we made it a contest. If you hate your miserable life, <laughs> sign up here. Sign up here and we'll change it. I love that. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my from this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Judy McGrath. We were talking about creatives running companies. You're one of the few creatives that ran a very big company. How do you think a company differs when a creative runs the company than one of the business people run the company or the lawyer or the accountant or the salesperson? Well, you know, I was stuck on a flight once with Jerry Laybourne, who, you know, the queen mother goddess genius of Nickelodeon. And she said, you know, Judy, you will never really be terrific at this until you learn to look at business as creatively as you look at creative. And I really thought about that, you know, and I set out to learn how to love a P&L. <laughs> the business people in all of our companies are not typical business people either. You know, there's creative thinking in everything. I really do believe that. I'm not one of those people that thinks creativity is for the precious few, but as I grew up through the ranks and I left just managing all those wonderful, incredible, creative people that I loved, and I started to learn to fall in love with Comedy Central and Nickelodeon and, you know, got the chance to help create a safe and wonderful place for Jon Stewart and, you know, Dave Chappelle and John Oliver and Colbert and all those great people. I started to think like my job now is to sort of protect and defend the ability to create and innovate and take chances on people. The business has to be sound. You know, the business has to work. And I also always believed in know your audience. So if I'm speaking to someone who's going to be making a business decision, I need to be able to speak to them in their language and not in any way that sort of undermines or undercuts or makes it sound like I don't understand what they need to do as well. So I really came to wake up one day and realize I really enjoy being the business lead of this company now too. We were all seduced. Yeah, we were seduced. We were seduced. Although I did have a funny moment. I remember saying to somebody, you know, God, we really should get on the train and go to Philadelphia and like, sit down with Brian and say, thank you. And they were like, 
what? I'm not going to Philadelphia and getting on a train and doing a sort of like, no, you're missing the point though. I mean, they're in this with us, right? You know, and they're funding us. They're part of the mix. I value his view. I've been around him. I've seen it. So I started to see the creativity and value and the joy in trying to figure out a business and make a business work. Obviously, media is going through some heavy, hard times. What isn't? It's battered around. It's crazy. It was ever thus. But I think everybody who works someplace feels good when the business is working. So you're trying to get shows on the air. You're trying to make programming changes. You know the tension. You've got a seller, sales head that says, we need this kind of programming because that's what advertisers want. Or somebody says, I've got this great show. And the sales head goes, oh, that's terrible. No one wants that. What do you do? I ran into this frequently. Like, you know, we can't sell South Park. Like, guys, guys, you're not selling South Park. You're selling like young men and young women and a cultural phenomenon. They love this. They flock to it. They, it is the perfect commentary on the times we live in. It's so genius. You would be so lucky to be near this. It's not about what you're going to be afraid of in South Park. It's going to be like, you want to talk to the people who love South Park. I know you do. And we've got them. And we love South Park. We'll love it for you. But I can convince you that this is exactly where you want to be. You know, and at the same time, when Jon Stewart was really rolling, and every now and then somebody would say, oh, God, does he have to talk to the Iranian physicist talking about nuclear? I'm like, Leave him alone. Let him talk to whomever he wants to talk to. He's curating this show. We're on a journey with him. I don't need another person to talk to the celebrity of the day. You know, there's lots of that. Defend the talent and help the sales organization or the client see that what you really want is a relationship with the fan. And the fan is coming in through this door. And you want to be near that door. You don't want to shut that door. And how often did you have to go meet with the client? To give I, them that pitch. I did a lot of that. But, you know, the problem with taking me on a client trip was, you know, there were a multitude of issues sometimes. I mean, there was a... One is you don't like to travel. I don't like to travel, okay, which is ridiculous. I miss so much. There's a great, great guy. And he invited me to lunch with a client for Taco Bell. And during the lunch, I said, you know, I'm really curious, like, what's your Facebook strategy? And he kicked me so hard under the table, I thought I was never going to walk again. Because in his view, he didn't want to acknowledge there was anything else. I mean, like, oh, my God, this is about selling empty. And she said, you know, I still believe I sell more tacos to people who are watching, like, Comedy Central and MTV. But I'll tell you what I'm thinking about Facebook. And I thought, well, this is like, this is acknowledging. I know that you know there's lots of other things in the world. We're all in the same media business. What are you thinking? What are you doing? So depending on the client, I would be either a good date for the, uh, or the you know, the lunch date. or the nightmare date. Nightmare where they'd date. say, well, you did a great sale for uh, Facebook. Thank you. We won't need to see you again. So let me jump a little bit. You're a role model for a lot of people especially creatives always, but you've been a great role model for women. If you think about it, in the days of MTV, we probably, looking back, had an extraordinary number of women in very important roles. Today we'd be crowing about it probably. You know, whether you like it or not, you have been mentoring people. You've been setting an example. How do you handle that responsibility, and what do you do consciously about that? You know, I can remember some things that just felt like personal milestones to me. I remember one year sitting you know, one of the great fun things I got to do would be hang out in the rehearsals for the Video Music Awards. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, wow, you know, we've got a female director. We have a female on stage managing the crew. We have a young woman who's the head writer. We have a young woman in charge of seating and events. But we've got women in roles that were not traditionally women's roles. They were just really good. And I do think it's incumbent on somebody who gets an opportunity like I got to look out for underrepresented people in general. And so, you know, when Beth McCarthy Miller raised her hand, it was an easy, like, let's let Beth direct. Come on. Like, she can do it. We know she can do it. Everybody knows she can do it. And I looked around and thought, wow, this whole thing is kind of really 
looking very different than most of the other sets that I've been on. And, you know, I always felt like I worked with men who were not like typical and young employees who are not typical. So how ridiculous would it be to take a typical approach to anything else? We were upending tradition all the time and not just for the sake of doing it, but because you get, give somebody a chance, they'll knock themselves out to show you that they can really do it. And we actually talked about it back then. We said, you know, if somebody's done three or four things and they're not great, we have empirical evidence they won't be great. Yeah. But if we give somebody a shot who's never done it, they could be the next Steven Spielberg. Exactly uh, and right. And the only way we're going to find out is to take a shot. Exactly. And you continued to do that through your career. I'm most drawn to it. It's what happened to me, and I still feel it. I had lunch with a kid yesterday, and I thought, oh, my God, I would hire this kid tomorrow. He's been teaching a knife-throwing class. <laughs> Oh, good. We, we might need <laughs> and that. And doing improv. But I was th- it was like he wants to be an agent or something. I'm like, why not? Of course, you know. So now that we're not 20-something and you've got experience under your belt, what are the two things that you wish someone had told you about getting old? God. Well, let's see. In spite of how old you may be, If your heart and soul are young and youthful, don't shy away from it. And at the same time, own your experience and find a way to share it when asked or even when not. I was sitting next to a young guy who's running a company and he was looking at a piece of of media and he said, that's boring. That was it. And I watched the kid who had showed it to him look deflated. So I said, you know, that's not really actionable advice. My first editor who said, this is what a headline is. You could say, you know, it drags in the middle. Like if I were you, I would move this piece to the back. You could try that. Or you take it and go back and think about where do you think it's slow and then come back and show me. But this quick kind of like just dismissive dismissive is not going to get you really where you want to go. And he's just going to think you're a jerk and I give up. Okay, so let's jump to, you've always done good. Rock the vote, Mm -hmm. choose or lose, AIDS awareness. How did you think about that inside of a company, and how do you think of it for you as a a person? Well, you know, inside MTV, it was very interesting. I once heard Tina Fey say something about, it was a panel where a bunch of women were sort of congratulating each other for different things, and someone said they were lucky. And a bunch of other women jumped on her and said, oh, my God, Women always say they're lucky. Men never say they're lucky. You made your own luck. And Tina was actually very thoughtful about it. And she said, I think timing plays a role in something as well as luck and talent. So when we decided to get into, you know, and certainly Rock the Vote was not our idea. Politics. Jeff Aroff? Who are those? Jeff Aroff. So Jeff was very passionate about this. And it sort of grew into Rock the Vote. And I remember talking to Tom Freston, with whom I had an extraordinarily great creative relationship. And this was one of the rare instances where we had a a blowout, really. We really didn't agree. But I listened to what he said. He said, this is a terrible idea. It's not going to work. This is an entertainment brand. Nobody cares about this. We're going to get laughed out of town. We do not have permission to do this. There's nothing about us that says we should be stepping anywhere near an election or voting or any of this So I went back and I thought about it a little bit and I thought, okay, this is where I come into the picture. I think I grew up in an era where I thought music, one of the many things I loved about music was its social commentary. And it is about the times we live in and it is about everything. And it's about all the things that affect you in a very deep way. And I thought, I think there's a way to do this where it will be engaging. This was not about telling young people you need to vote. That's not the way I looked at it at all. It was saying to people who make big decisions in this country. This is a generation that is disengaged from you and you need to address them on their turf, their way. And we'll invite you to do that. That's your shot. It wasn't about trying to be parental or any of that kind of stuff to them or give them boring facts or anything like that. And so we got as smart as we could get. And I think I didn't tell anybody. That's another thing. I sent Tabitha Soren. Tabitha went to New Hampshire And she called me at like midnight. She said, you know, I got up here and like a bunch of candidates are like, what's MTV? 
And she said, and then a couple of them like got back off the bus, primarily Bill Clinton, and said, I'll talk to you. And then we were sort of off and running. And, you know, that partnered with incredible creative work on those Rock the Vote spots. I mean, Madonna wrapped in a flag. And then fast forward to, you know, we're going to throw an inaugural ball that's not official and see if anybody comes to the party and R.E.M.'s going to play and, and Vogue's going to play. We tried to make it as spirited as MTV, but add a little bit of gravitas, if you will, and meaning, you know, like you do matter. You are young, but you matter and you deserve to be heard and listened to. And we're going to help you. Well, it's still held up as the example of the best way to do it. So you did a a great job with it, Judy. It was fun. It was great. Well, it shows, too. So let me jump to CEO MTV Networks, board member Amazon. How do you contrast and compare those two roles? To have a a front row seat at two phenomena in your lifetime is incredible. So I would start there. But... um, Board members are not operators, and that's a hard thing to learn. You know, the tendency to want to lean in and get in it is very real. You're supposed to take the long view all the time. And one of the things I love about Amazon, which is very much like we were, is that they are, as we all know, relentlessly customer-focused. And they have a list of tenants and principles, and they live by them. And it is customer, customer, customer. And another one I like is day one. They want you to feel like this is the first day. This is a new idea. What can we do today that's different than what we did yesterday? Hence, Alexa. You know, so I find their spirit of what can we invent is a major part of their DNA. And it moves fast. So in that regard, I relate very much to it. I think... I'm the sort of media person among the my colleagues. It's a very small board. It's run in some unique ways. Sometimes it's read this book and we're all going to discuss it and see how this doesn't happen here to, you know, everything they do, they write as a paper that you have to think about. And when you get there, no PowerPoint. It's like, okay, any questions? Let's get into it. So it's a culture that is familiar to me from the media business, which is like, let's get into it already. Let's talk about it. Let's like figure out what it is. And at the same time, take the long view, you know, think about the customer. There's an incredible guy on the board who I love really very much who runs the Cornell Tech Center. So he is immersed, steeped. He knows everything about this kind of thing. And he's trying to put humanities and tech together and talk about ethics. In one meeting, I sometimes feel like I'm speaking from a different Alexa than the rest of the room. He said, you know, I really agree with Judy on one thing, the value of talent. Scientists, technologists, inventors are talent. They want to know that you are hearing their idea and you like their idea and you're going to help them nurture and foster their idea. So as much as talent attraction to me was everything coming up through MTV and Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, talent is everything there as well. You know, it's like you want the best people, and those people need to think that you understand them as talent. They're really no different at the end of the day than the original VJs, you know, our talent, or the musicians who absolutely, incredibly, crazily love what they're doing. They need to know that you understand that, you value it. And I think that's very much a part of why, in spite of whatever you want to think or debate about it, Amazon continues to just flourish. Constant invention, reinvention, focus on the best talent, focus on the best ideas, make it easy for them to do it, give them what they need to do it. And not afraid to make mistakes. No, absolutely not. In fact, essential. I think we weren't either. There were so many. I mean, they even make lists of stuff that didn't work and they say, hey, you know, it's okay, we'll move that team over here and try something else. The worst thing is to not try. So jumping off point, Alexa, smart speakers, audio, podcast, sort of the new audio renaissance. What do you think about it? It was another one of those things, dare I say, like MTV, when you think like, oh my God, yeah, that's what I was waiting for. 
you know, someone who can play music for me and give me the weather and the news and is a voice and can talk to me. I think it takes into account a lot of the things we've been talking about. What makes somebody's life easier? What makes it more fun? What helps connect you to the stuff you want? It goes back to the most basic thing, radio. The sound of a voice in the wilderness that is the most human connection. So I think all those smart devices are really tapping into some basic human needs. We'll take our appreciation back to Amazon. Everyone at Audio thinks Amazon has been a game changer. For us, it's the new clock radio. 45% of households used to have a clock radio. Now it's 19%. But who cares? Now there's Amazon. Mm -hmm. Now there's Alexa. We've got the clock radio back. We talked about contrarians. Mm -hmm. We talked about outsiders. And we were early outsiders. I think the whole MTV crew was. But today, it seems like with all the startups, everybody's an outsider. It's sort of hard to find the insiders. If you want to be an insider, how the hell do you get those skills? Where do you go? <laughs> the beauty of media today, whether it's a podcast or a TED Talk or whatever, you can dial up and teach yourself how to do Photoshop or listen to Warren Buffett or go international and find someone who might have some wisdom that comes from something completely different that can inform your thinking. It's almost your responsibility. You can say, I'm not just going to listen to slow burn. I'm going to try something completely different and see what I take out of that. And it can help inform your idea and make it more likely to succeed, I would say. And yet, I still find that I loved the era of magazine writers who I thought really knew something I didn't know and could tell me a story in a way that I couldn't tell it. And I still search for those voices and those people. And I think there are lots of them out there. So I think you have to search out your own contrarians. So let me jump one more place. We're in a world of this incredibly fragmented information, entertainment, everything for everybody. We ever build another cable network? Is there any audience out there that's unserved? Anybody looking for a linear TV channel? You know, that is really... Are we the last of the that is one of the That is one of the questions. It seems to me when you can have everything, you start to want some things curated for you. There's a reason why rap caviar hit everybody like a lightning, you know what I mean? When you think about radio's been around forever. When you first said iHeartRadio, I was thinking like iHeartRadio. And then I started to think about like, I do love radio. I do heart radio. You know, I want someone to help me find my way through all of this stuff. I still believe there's a role for somebody to curate for me this massive sea of choice and help me navigate while I also have the freedom to discover on my own. So that's why you begin to trust brands. You know, like I trust an event on iHeartRadio. I trust it's going to have the zeitgeist in mind. I trust when I look for something on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, that there's going to be something in there. They know that I like Handmaid's Tale, and they do. They're going to find something for me. So is there going to be another single point of entry? I mean, look, we grew up in an era where everybody was arguing about Vietnam. Now it's like there's so many different things to debate. It can be overwhelming. So I still look to the curator's and I still think there's probably room for an idea that none of us have thought of yet. And we're all going to go like, oh, my God, why didn't we think of that? Okay, so we're going to end it back on math and magic. Best mathematician you know? I would say my friend Dan, who started the Cornell Tech okay. Center. Best magician you know? Not counting you. You know, I still have to give it up to early MTV. You, Tom, Bob, and pretty much any musician is Love a magician. It. Thanks, Judy. Thank you, Bob. Always fun. Here's a couple of things I take away from this episode with Judy. It might be easier to just fix your employees' work yourself, but if you want them to grow, take the time to teach them. It'll benefit you down the line. When advertisers are skittish of being associated with certain content, show them the relationship they want is not with the content, but with the fan who likes the content. And finally, if you want your business to upend the traditional, don't hire typical people. Judy's looking at hiring knife throwers. I'm Bob Pittman. 
Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.